Welcome to The Elusive Consumer. Ellie is joined today by Michelle Parsons, an experienced product leader who has worked at well-known companies such as Netflix, Spotify, Kayak, and most recently, Hinge. Join us as Michelle discusses her career path and her recent work at Hinge, where she oversaw the development of new features and led a redesign of Hinge's dating app based on extensive user research. Let's get started on The Elusive Consumer. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to The Elusive Consumer. It's really nice to have you. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, In our world, we, in the world of research, we often talk about how to build authentic connections from brands to consumers and how to use data and insights to achieve that. And I'm really excited about this episode because you seem to be a person that really values data and insights in your professional uh, role. So I'd like to hear more about that. But before we go into all of that and your role at Hinge, could you talk us a little bit about your journey and what led you to your existing role? I think, you know, people who end up finding their pathways into products, especially over the past decade, um, sometimes have very like different journeys into how they discovered what product management was. Uh, and that's definitely um, the story for me. So, you know, growing up, I really wanted to be a doctor. And I think that a lot of it, a lot of that really had a lot to do with the fact that when I looked out into society, when I looked out into the world, doctors were really using both science and creativity to solve really big problems and really help people. And for me, it was something that really resonated with me. Kind of growing up in a lower income um, household in a place where, um, you know, very predominantly Hispanic and Mexican population. Um, That was really important to me. And I looked up to those individuals as kind of cornerstones of society and of our community. Um, And I went to college and studied that. I was really adamant about uh, becoming a doctor. I love science and science is something that had always really just um, kind of sparked a, a light in me. Um, it's inquisitive by nature. You ask a lot of questions and you can use a lot of data and insights, the observations around to go and solve problems and, and come up with your own answers. Um, and and oftentimes asking yourselves even more questions once you find those answers. So um, kind of I got to the end of my college career, college journey, and um, I just don't have a lot of doubts, honestly, about going into the medical field for a number of reasons. I think um, it's cost prohibitive and time prohibitive. And I just, does it, I didn't know whether or not I really wanted to, you know, spend and commit the next 10 years to studying um, the medic- medical kind of profession. So I ended up going into teaching. Um, teaching has also been something in education has also been, been a um, really big um, part of my life. I've been influenced so heavily by teachers and mentors and coaches and advisors throughout my entire life. Um, from, you know, elementary all the way to my career now, I I really found a deep passion there. But I saw a lot of problems. And I realized that the scale that I had in my individual classroom just wasn't going to be enough. And I wanted to do more. I wanted to have a greater impact. And I ended up joining a small ed tech uh, startup in Boston called Alleyoop. Um, and it did not survive because what we were trying to do was basically sell supplementary and remedial education to kids on their off hours. And no kid wants to do studying on their off hours. But it was a really <laughs> awesome little startup. It was about 30 of us. And we were using like gaming technology then to, or game mechanics rather, to try to help motivate kids to take them through this like learning, these learning pathways. And 
I discovered product management through that job. I started as a curriculum specialist and just kept on really at the at that time. You know, we still had cubicles. <laughs> Offices have really changed um, since I started working. You know, fourteen, fifteen years ago, I kept on peeking my head over to the product team. I kept on asking my boss, like, "What is that team doing?" And I had a million and one questions. And finally, she was just like, "Michelle, go talk to that team." <laughs> Um, and so that was really kind of the the spark that led me into product. I started helping them with, you know, customer interviews and competitive analysis and just really anything that the team needed help with. I was just throwing my hat into the ringer. And so that's really how I, I landed into product. And then, you know, through my career, through my journey, I've just really looked for problem spaces that I've really found a deep passion in and have resonated with me deeply. And I feel like that is the best way from my perspective to really kind of get a footing and a foothold into like that empathy that I believe is like really critical for the best product managers to really deeply empathize with your right. users and what they're doing. And so, yeah, so I landed at Hinge over the past two years. I spent time there um, helping build and scale the company and it's been fantastic. That's great. And I love how you describe um, asking the right questions. I was reading your bio and you mentioned, I believe in empowering my teams to ask the right questions and use creativity and data to find solutions to user problems. And then you go on to say that I like to um, see myself as an optimizer that translates data into strategic visions to create meaning meaningful impact. And again, we go back to the data and insights there. Talk us through, again, what data and asking, the importance of asking the right questions means to you in your current role. Yeah. So I think, you know, when I think about asking the right questions, I really think that it's about getting several layers deeper than just like, what should we be building? It's really about what are our customers, what are our users coming to us for? What are their emotional states, their mental states? their environmental states that they're experiencing when they are coming to our products. I think for Hinge, it's a really interesting intersection of consumer product and psychological and emotional and behavioral science, honestly. Because when you think about a user who is coming to a dating app, you know, they're coming for a variety of reasons. They could be seeking love um, for the very first time. They could be brand new to a dating site. They could have, this could be their 30th time on a dating app. You know, they could be coming right after a heartbreak. They, become, they could be coming after a failed relationship, after failed relationship, after failed relationship. Um, or they could be coming super optimistic because they just heard about this amazing product from their friend that had, you know, a marriage and a baby and all the other things that come along with the relationship. And, you know, you really need to be cognizant of like how your users are showing up to your product and what their mental models are when they approach downloading for the first time or using it for the 30th time. And I really think that it's, you know, for me, it's about asking my teams to always go a little layer, a layer deeper to really understand like what is the mission and the goal for your particular area that you're owning, right? Whether it's the profiles team whose mission is really about helping the users empower and showcase what's truly, you know, what truly makes them them or something down to our activation team, which is really just trying to help get people off on the right foot for their very first time, their very first few moments on on the app. And when the teams come together, it's not about asking like, what ideas do we have that are going to solve this problem, these problems that we that we you know we believe to be true, but it's really about how do we uncover what the biggest problems are, what the biggest opportunities are. I actually spend the majority of our time focused on that space, that big broad space. 
before we even get deeper into what ideas, what solutions might we be able to dream up to actually solve those problems? Because sometimes I think we, you know, we can oftentimes go down into the ideas and start debating the ideas, the mechanics of like, is it this button? Is it this color? Is it this copy? Is it this solution? And we've lost track of like, is this thing even solving the main problems? And there's many products out there that you see just like filled with features and um, and experiences that aren't actually solving the problem. They, they, they get in the way and they become overcomplicated. And so it's, you know, I think from our team, it's really about getting deeper back down to first principles, asking about who this user is, what their key problems are, and how we might be able to really illuminate the opportunities ahead of them or remove friction when they encounter it. And how do you go about doing that, uh, whether it's at your role at Hinge or in previous roles at Netflix? For instance, you worked in the kids and family unit where you're also crossing the boundary of um, data privacy and security. And, you know, um, I'd like you to talk us through that. I know that's a couple of questions in one, but how do you balance, how do you strike the right balance between that user's privacy, but also creating the most um, enjoyable experience for them? Yeah, I think when, you know, my approach to building product is always to ensure we have every kind of discipline um, present in the room, including policy, GR, you know, legal. But I, I think it first comes down to helping everyone understand. I think it's coming back to what is the what is the goal that we're trying to accomplish here? And really grounding that in what the user is trying to come to our product, our service for. Because if you bring everything always back to the user and you really try to deeply empathize again with what their goals are when they show up to your product, whether it's Netflix or Spotify or Hinge, and what they might be experiencing right? Both in terms of actually physically using their product as they navigate through it, as they try to make decisions about what to do, what to select, what to, you know, what to play or what to do next. Also really keeping deeply deep down, like, who are these people? Because these are actual humans, right? Mm. I think sometimes we, we can dehumanize individuals when we're thinking about building products because we're so concerned about, is this thing going to hit my metric? Is this thing going to drive revenue? Right. Is this thing going to drive doubt? And we forget that these are actually real people who are showing up to our products with real emotions and real feelings. And what I always try to do is worry at my teams around that. Because I think that when you can deeply relate to individuals and you can actually like almost physically put your feet into your user's shoes, you start to be able to, t to take a little bit of a different perspective on how they might be feeling when they show up. And then I think privacy and trust and security becomes a top concern because mm -hmm. it's a top concern for me when I'm using any product. Right. And so how might I then bring that into the things that I'm actually building and creating? Um, and so the things that I, I tend to do with teams then is as we're constructing our, our big opportunities map, um, really trying to understand, like, what are the, all the ways in which we might be able to solve these problems? And then we're getting deeper into ideas. We start to bring in a variety of different disciplines so that they also have the deep context, not just at the, at the moment of, hey, we're about to build this thing. Can you go check this to make sure that it's compliant with COPA, for example, kids or GDPR. But no, they understand how we got to these ideas to begin with. Right. And now they're really invested and bought into the, the journey and they're helping us problem solve. Okay, well, you know, I, I encountered something at Netflix where we were trying to build um, a, a kids activity report. And the goal for this particular, uh, you know, new feature, new, new product was to help parents Get kind of get an insight into what their kids were exploring and experiencing in in um, in Netflix 
what different topics they were being exposed to, what their favorite characters were, um, new ideas for discovery. The goal here is really to help inspire discovery through parents. Um, one of the things that we heard was that, you know, parents wanted their kids to move off of certain shows. Like they had watched that show, you know, for the hundredth millionth time. And they're like, I just don't know what to give my kid next. And one of the things that we had uncovered was that parents just don't have a lot of insight into what other shows and characters or kids might like that are similar, but also offer kind of maybe different topics in terms of skills or emotional or social emotional learning. Um, and so this report was, you know, a collaboration between a, a number of teams. It's an email. It was really a really amazing uh, product. But in the UK, um, one of the things that we learned as we were kind of going through the development of this is that you know, child protection laws in the UK are very different than child protection laws in the US. And in fact, a child in the UK um, has the right to be protected from their parents <laughs> in terms of the data, their data and their usage. And so something like a kid's activity report, which is basically taking kids' watch history and data, even though it's their parents' account and being sent to somebody else who's not them, um, is actually, is, you know, against the law in, in some capacities, in certain capacities. And so we, you know, we worked really closely with our legal teams, our policy teams to figure out well, how can we actually go about testing this without necessarily putting ourselves at, at, at risk um, and ensuring that we're being compliant. So I think that, you know, bringing these teams in really early and helping them really understand, they start to problem solve and create a problem solve with you. And that's interesting because you, you talk about bringing different types of perspective into one room and getting the best um, feature in, in terms of backgrounds and expertise. So how do you do that in terms of creating more inclusive products to ensure that, in fact, all voices are heard and all of us feel more included in, in new features? This, to me, is something that starts with, first and foremost, building inclusive teams, so building teams that are representative of diverse backgrounds, cultures, experiences, um, I think that it's really difficult to build inclusive products when you have a team that looks and thinks and has lived experiences that are all the same. Um, you know, so that's where I, I tend to try and start. Uh, moving forward, I think that inclusivity should be part of the conversation. Like any other, you know, PRD or spec or or strategy doc, it's just a, it's about thinking about who your users are and how they might experience your product a little bit differently. Whether that be people with disabilities or people from different sexual orientations, you know, Hinge, this was a, a primary thing that I encountered when I first showed up to to Hinge, um, or whether it's people with different experiences and backgrounds and ethnicities, you know, so, something that um, I'm actually extremely proud of that I worked on at Netflix was um, a Representation Matters collection. Uh, this was during the pandemic, the time of George Floyd, and, you know, the teams were really working hard to spotlight, um, you know, Black, black creators, Black um, artists, black actors. And I use leading kids and family. And I, you know, I was like, why are we doing something on the kids and family side for this? And I got some pushback. Um, but I was I advocated for it. You know, I'm I'm um, half Hispanic. I grew up in a Hispanic household. I'm queer. I never really saw faces and people that looked like me until I was much older. Um, and I'm thankful that there's more representation now in the world. And that's just kind of a part more of a norm. Um, but I think that kids, you know, want to see people that look like them when they grow up because it helps inspire them. It helps make them dream in different ways and motivates them. And so I got a team together. It was stealth. We were all working from home and spread out across, you know, the country at this point. 
and it was a really fast turnaround that we were trying to get um, done. And I kind of started on honestly a week later than the um, Netflix kind of adult side of the house. And so we got together, we wrote up a PRD, we talked to some of our, our leaders and got them kind of bought into it. Um, and we started to try to create this Representation Matters collection that really showcased um, diverse characters. So whether that be a ability or background or orientation or ethnicity and put into a collection that was easy to find. And we spotlighted it right on our um, kids' homepage. Um, and then one of the things that that actually sparked was we started to realize, wow, there is not a lot of content that features diverse characters in the kids' space on Netflix right now. And we got together with our, our content partners um, over in LA and we started talking about like what we could do. And that actually sparked um, the creation of several more um uh, content and, and shows and series that were focused on diverse creators, diverse characters. And I think it really, really, you know, helped to illuminate that with the with the variety of disciplines from content to data to product to really help make that um, happen. And then, you know, here at Hinge, I think that we think of everything as, you know, love for all, right? Everybody deserves to find mm. love regardless of who you are, where you come from and how you love. And so that has really been a cornerstone of, you know, the past two years I spent at Hinge, which is really building in a more inclusive experience for specifically the LGBTQ plus audience, but also ensuring that we constantly evaluated what ethnicities we had, how we how we showed up for our users who needed accessibility. Um, and so that's been a really, you know, powerful tool, I think, that I've been able to bring, uh, especially since I have lived experiences and, and that's kind of LGBTQ plus realm. And it's it's really nice to hear organizations that are making a positive in, impact in this space and that more brands are becoming aware of how this will ultimately impact your revenue. Um, moving on from that to the tagline that Hinge uses, the app that's meant to be deleted and how you're really living up to that tagline through your data-driven approach. Could you talk us a little bit about what Hinge does differently in order to be more um, data-driven and user-focused. Yeah, you know, I think starting from that tagline, from you know the mission of Hinge, which is really about creating an app and an experience that's built for meaningful relationships. That's really meant to help drive people towards intention, connection, and eventually off of the app. Now the 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 world is changing, and the what what a relationship is is also changing. And so I think it's really about intention, about meaningful, about that about connections between individuals that are based on authenticity and based on vulnerability and based on um, open and truthful communication. And I think that the things that you know Hinge does is um, it's it's several fold. You know, it starts from just the design of the app. So when you think about um, you know, juxtapose against other apps out there that are that are swiping. So you make decisions much more rapidly because the mechanics of moving your thumb from left to right are just much faster than the mechanics of having to move your hand from up, you know, from up to down. Um, you also have to like content on Hinge versus just swipe. And so it just slows the entire process down. So what might take a millisecond on one of the other apps takes you know, a second to two seconds on Hinge. And so by that very nature, you must slow down and you must evaluate just a little bit more. The other thing that, that's really important is that we do require users to upload six photos and three prompts to even use the app. So our onboarding process is 20 minutes on average compared to maybe a minute that the other apps might take. 
And the goal here is again to just ensure that you're that you're putting enough effort in to the experience so that we can guarantee that the community is of higher quality. Um, now, I will say that over time, though, you might just see people kind of like, okay, I'll take I'll take the 20 minutes to fill out a profile. That's fine. I figured out how to like hack the profile. And there's many Reddit threads out there that you can find. You know, I think dating apps were built off, the he- off of the heels of so- social media, like Instagram and Facebook. And so there's already these built-in dopamine receptors. I know that this picture gets this many likes on my Instagram, so I'm going to pull that over, you know, here. I know the recipe or the formula that tends to get likes, and it might not be actually super reflective of who I am. And so what ends up happening mm. when you actually look into the data, what you see is that at the end of the funnel, Hinge kind of showed up as every other app. Like it was, we basically had the exact same problems when it came to people chatting, people ghosting, you know, bad dates, et cetera. And we were like asking ourselves why. So when you look at this data, you know, you might immediately say, well, there's a problem in chat. We need to help people have better chats. We need to help people build momentum in chat. And I think for me, when I looked at that data, I was asking myself the question, well, why? Why are users not having like productive and exciting chats? Why are they just ghosting each other? Why are people falling off from momentum? Why is the why is the speed and the pace so slow? Because if I think about myself out in real life, as I if I saw somebody at a party or at a museum or or somewhere that I was like intrigued and attracted to, I'm going to go up to them and probably try to find some way to talk to them, and nothing's going to stop me from doing that because there's some level of spark or attraction. And when I think about what was missing on dating profiles and dating apps, it was that level of like wow, I'm just so excited about this person that I really want to engage with them in deeper and deeper, more meaningful ways. And when we realized what was happening, it's not that people didn't know how to chat. Like we didn't need games or questions in chats or like or like an inbox, you know, people had talked about that. Like maybe we can star people because there's so many chats in the chat list. And well, why are people collecting so many chats in the chat list? Like you're not going to be able to effectively go out with 14 people. Like that seems a little bit ridiculous, right? So what we ended up finding was that people were actually using the match list or their chat list as a secondary evaluation because they were giving very soft signal, you know, earlier on in the journey. And they weren't that interested. That's why they were talking. They just weren't that interested. And so they were going through this negative feedback loop constantly, getting burnt out, leaving the app, and then a couple months later coming back and doing the exact same thing because there was no better option. And so what we really tried to do here was focus then on how do we kind of bring a bit of that spark that you can get in real life, the texture, the, the 3D, the liveness, the voice, the personality into a dating profile, into something that is on a phone, flat, 2D, really, really difficult to, you know, help bring dynamism out from an individual. We are humans. We're all unique and creative and individuals. And so we started thinking about new formats and new ways to actually help motivate our users to share more about who they are. And that's how we developed voice prompts. That's how we got things like video prompts and prompts polls, all of these different ideas that would help our users express themselves in unique ways that were best for them. And the other thing that that did that was really important was it slowed down evaluation even more. Because now when you went to a profile, you didn't know what you were going to get, right? This profile might have a voice prompt. This next profile might have a video prompt. This next profile might have a prompt poll. And so profiles became less homogenous. They become less homogenous. Whereas in the few, in the past, every profile kind of looked the same. And so eventually, you know, I love that Febreze commercial when they're talking about like you got nose blind because your house just like 
You don't really know what your house smells like anymore right. until someone new comes. Well, it's kind of like I think about dating apps. It's kind of like you're just eventually you're just like going through the motions. And so how do you get people to actually have more excitement and more awe, like the possibilities that are in front of them? And it's really through helping users express more of who they are in very deep and nuanced ways. And that's, I think, what we've been able to discover through this data and through talking to our users about, you know, what resonates and what doesn't resonate with them. And and you often mention that word authenticity and what role that plays um, throughout different uh, features. But how do you continue that, particularly in a world that's moving more away from that human factor and more towards things like AI? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting question. I think that at the end of the day, individuals and, and humans are all very unique. We have our own experiences. We have our own, you know, um, we have our own insecurities. We have our own um, passions. We have our own vulnerabilities. We have our own um, ex- things that excite us. And I think that that, yes, like there's AI and there's things that, that can help us like, you know, put a filter in a photo or write a better prompt or, you know, take some of the edge off on some of the corners of like the things that we want to create and build. But I oftentimes think the way that you approach that is going to be different based on who you are. And so I still think that there, that authenticity will shine through and should come through because we don't want to become, I think, you know, a society of people who all act and look and think the same. I think that's, that's the, that's the beauty of diversity. It's the beauty of you know, our unique and individual experiences. That's the that's the beauty of coming together as communities or in relationships, learning from each other, is growing from each other, is being having that human connection. I think that things like, you know, generative AI and other things of that nature, like the metaverse, all these other things that like that are having kind of like buzzwords that have popped up over the past couple of years are just things I think that are that can help us express ourselves in different, more nuanced ways. But I think the way that you show up and even think about things like Roblox, for example, you can pick out your own skins, your own clothes. Like, so, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing wor- the world in this like virtual world, but I'm still my own unique avatar. You know, I still think that the way that you think about how you put your own flavor, how you put your own personality into the things that you're creating with these other tools will still be a bit reflective of who you are. Um, and so that's why I think that there will always be space for both. I think that like tools and new features, new features and new technologies help enhance us um, and help enhance society and communities versus a kind of replace. So what do you think is next in the app dating world specifically in terms of future innovation or anything fun that you might be working on at the moment? The things that I'm very excited about to see kind of as a team now goes on, you know, I, I'm, I've taken a step back and I'm, I'm moving um, into more of an executive and residence role at product school to really kind of focus more on my coaching and how, how product management is actually taught. But the thing that I'm really excited that the team will be working on, I think, is exploring is how do you actually help people form these authentic relationships in a society? I think you talked a little bit about this. You know, there there are some of these formulaic things that users and people believe to be the the ingredients for a perfect relationship. And sometimes mm. what ends up happening is you put on these masks and you put up these walls that ultimately over time, like three months, six months into a relationship, you can no longer sustain and they have to start coming off. And that's when you really see these relationships start to become rocky and shaky. And, the, you know, the ones that survive are the ones that 
you know, two individuals are able to communicate through their challenges and their insecurities and their vulnerabilities. But I do think that this is something that needs work. You know, one of the things I'm actually extremely excited to, to, to see that's happened over the past kind of, you know, three or so years is a focus on mental health and mental well-being and how this has become part of just the discourse of individuals. You know, I'll talk about my friends. You'll talk about it in the workplace. It becomes, it's become a norm. What I don't think has really become part of the norm or the discourse is couples, you know, mental well-being, mm. couples re- relationship therapy. Because I think that there is so much stigma that's tied to talking about basic problems that might arise in a, in a relationship or how you might address, you know, deep differences in perspective or, or opinions. And, you know, I look at individuals who are, you know, in my life who are really doing some of this hard work who are who do go to couples therapy and they go to it because they're in a good place, you know. It's not that you have to go to it when you're in a bad place. Like I wouldn't go see a therapist when I'm just like at the brink. I want to see a therapist to keep up really positive mental well-being, talk about how I'm feeling, how I'm approaching problems, et cetera. And so I think that there is an opportunity for us to really dive into a world of like not just relationship formation or connection rather, but relationship evolution. Because that to me, you know, is one of the biggest missed opportunities that no one's focused on right now. And it's not enough, I think, for these apps to say like, well, we've done our job, we've connected you, and now you go do the rest of the work. Because what you see from the data is that so many people, about half of our users are coming back onto the app after, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's a failed relationship or a pause or whatever it might be. And so there's an opportunity for us to really help reorient and re and reshape the way that they come back the next time. And I think that there is an exciting opportunity there. I like that uh, relationship evolution. Um, talking about that, you mentioned vulnerability and showing that and that it's become more common and less stigmatized to talk about various vulnerabilities now, but also that vulnerability can be seen as a strength. How do you go about as a leader setting that sort of example for your team. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I I work on actively all the time. I think that especially as a leader, it's so important for you to be open and transparent with both your successes and your failures. I think that modeling has a lot to do with how your team will then show up to their teams, how psychologically safe they will feel to fail, to come to you with problems, to come to you with ideas. And this is something I've had to learn. I honestly, I have, you know, I, in a very vulnerable, vulnerable state right now. I think there was times when I was earlier in my career where I tried to always keep everything so buttoned up and put all of the weight on my shoulders, like never wanted to fail. And you know, it caused me to become so stressed out and so anxious. And what I ended up doing was passing that stress and anxiety onto my team, right? Because when the leader of the team is taking on all the way and people people can tell you know people can see through the armor that you put on sometimes because oftentimes I actually believe that the armor is crystal clear right it's like I oftentimes talk about Mm. it like being like a very diamond exterior but you can see right through that it might be hard Mm. might be really really hard but you can see through it and so I think that it comes down to sometimes just when you're in that vulnerable state when you're feeling stressed and you're feeling anxious to name it and oftentimes i would sometimes start meetings being like today is a really stressful day for me and here's why 
And then when you name that in a meeting with your entire team, they're like, ah, I'm feeling like that too. And I've oftentimes had people slack me afterwards or send me a message and say, thank you for saying that because I was feeling so overwhelmed and I didn't know whether or not this was normal or not normal. And thank you for letting me know that it's not normal. I think that just little things like that, you never know how your words are going to hit somebody, how they're going to how they're going to experience or internalize those those words that you say, whether it is showing up in a vulnerable and open way or showing up in a tight and closed way, right? Both of those things will have impacts on how your team operates. And I think that it's okay. It's okay to sometimes have bad days and it's okay to, mm. to not necessarily be as open one day. And so I think that everyone just needs to give themselves a little bit of grace because we're all humans at the end of the day. And we're all really trying our best or trying our best to lead, to show up as our best, to do the best for our users. And sometimes, you know, you'll have a, a bad quarter and then it's like, whoop, we got to like roll those sleeves up and we got to figure out what we're going to do. But over time, if you build up that level of trust and camaraderie with your team, people are more willing to go with you in the trenches, especially if you've been transparent across, you know, across the board. And I, I like that because in research, we often say that authenticity will show and resonate with your customers and consumers at the end of the day. So going back to some of your previous experiences at some of these top tech companies, do you think that that culture existed? And if not, what did you do to go about building that? Yeah, I think that most of the companies that I've worked for have had very strong mission-driven um, cultures um, and have really focused, you know, above all on the user. So I think that's one of the mm -hmm. privileges that I've had is that the products I've worked on have really been consumer first, try to solve like really deep rooted customer problems. Um, you know, taking things like, you know, music that's on a CD to music everywhere, taking things like you have to rent a DVD at a blockbuster, you know, back in the day to I can stream anything anywhere from any device. Um, to even things like dating where, you know, I used to have to like potentially go out all the time and now I can have access to many more people who might meet my, meet my you know, criteria and my needs and my desires much more effectively. I think that setting a strong culture, if you don't have one at your company, within your own team is super important. And one of the things that I've always tried to do is get everybody back in aligned to who our users are. Like, you know, I was, I mm -hmm. oftentimes will start meetings with just like, what are we here for? Almost like, a, you know, I mean, I was a teacher back in the day. So I oftentimes will like, just like pull up my like teacher, um, my teacher abilities. And um, it's really about, I think, helping the teams really understand like why we're all here and who we're here for. And that we're all here together to work on some same goal. Even if our teams are working on a variety of different problems, even if, you know, the activation team is working on onboarding and the profile team is working on profiles and discovery teams working on the recommender, you know, every team might be working on a small piece of the bigger problem, but we're all working on the same problem. We're all working on the same thing at the end of the day. And I think that that's the way to build that through line between teams. Because I've oftentimes heard like, well, I have no idea what this team is doing. I have no idea where I fit in. And that's the moment where I'm like, okay, got to beat the drum again, right? And as a leader, your goal really is to just kind of be repetitive almost over, over and over again. Um, if you think you've said it too many times, you haven't. And so it's really about helping remind everybody and bring people back into the tent, bring people back closer to each other, 
so they can see how everything fits into the larger puzzle. And what else do you think brands can do today to better serve their users and better emphasize that user experience? I think talk to their users. Uh, The the number of people Mm -hmm. who I hear who don't do the research, who don't talk to their customers, who don't look at feedback and review and customer service. I mean, the customer support and service teams are one of my best teams, one of my closest teams I love to bring in. And in fact, both at Netflix and at Hinge, we embedded the CX teams into the product teams because no one knows and hears from customers more than the people who are contacting our CX teams. And they are the the voice of the customer to a degree. And I think that at the very end of the day, I think that that's one of the things that, that teams can do. Embed your, your CX teams, embed one person, you know, who's an expert on whatever area that you're working on right into your product teams because they are part of the company. They're just not a support function. They are part of building better experiences because they are on the front line responding to users. So I think that's one thing. I think talk to customers. If you don't already talk to customers, like you don't need a robust research team. I understand that, you know, not every company can, um, can afford that or can have that, but even having your PMs do it once a week, once every two weeks, there, there are ways to basically get insights directly from your users. Those to me are, are the biggest, the biggest things. And what do you think is the main responsibility of product managers today in terms of when they're thinking about uh, tomorrow's products? I think the role of product managers will, has evolved and will continue to evolve. Um, the thing that I think that product managers um, are most responsible for is one team leadership and direction really helping to ensure that everybody on the team really understands like what they're working on, what, what the problems are, why, why they're here, why they're a team in the first place. I think it's number one, it's clarity of just understanding like why we're here and really ensuring that everyone deeply understands that. So doing a really great job of translating those insights and that data, the big problem space, the opportunity space, so that every function, design, research, data, um, engineering, et cetera, really understands what their role is in helping solve that problem. Because when the teams really deeply understand their problems, they all believe that they own that problem together. That's when I see the best work happen. I think secondly, it's really about looking into, you know, partnering deeply with design and research to really look into what are the biggest problems and opportunities that we're not tackling yet and how, how impactful could those be if we found a solution to them. And so it's really looking into the future to strategize and I really encourage my PMs to really think about strategy very deeply when they're thinking about the features that they're building. How are they going to leverage the features that they're building in a way that's going to impact the users, impact the business, but also what story are they trying to tell? Why are they even building this? And so I think that product managers need to be really excellent storytellers because they're telling a story to leadership, they're telling a story to their team, they're selling a story to the users themselves. And when we go out there and we build a product, you want that product to really resonate with how your brand is seen outside to how your product is felt and experienced in the app or in the service. I love that. The storytelling ability is so critical in any industry and um, particularly so in, in our world as well. You mentioned a great phrase earlier. You said, what are we here for? And that you bring that up with your team. If I could ask you on a personal level and in your next uh, career roles and uh, how you sh- how you go about living your life, what are your what are what are you here for? Yeah, I mean, I you know this again. I think as humans, we constantly are evolving. We're constantly learning. 
I have um, had so many successes in my life and so many failures alongside of those. I think the things that I try and live by are um, continuous growth and reflection. So for me, it is about, it's not about being perfect. It's not about showing up and knowing, thinking I know all the answers. Like I suffer from imposter syndrome, like many other people. I suffer from feeling like I'm not good enough. And, you know, for me, it is about trying to do my best every single day and trying to make an impact on the biggest problems that society faces. Uh, that is what drives me. I think that, you know, all the things that I've ever worked on, I've had deep connections to, like music, for example. Like it, it's just something that I can turn on a song and it changes my entire emotion, my entire my entire being. I love live music. I love going to concerts. You know, you have memories that are tied back to your earliest childhoods from, you know, CDs that you had, et cetera, all the way to dating, which, you know, I met my previous partner on on the apps and I met many community on the app. Like when I came out as as a, a queer woman, you know, from South Texas, I didn't know how to go about finding friends or relationships. And the apps were something that that I turned to to build community, to build friendships. And I still have community from these apps. So for me, it is about working on problems that I feel have a, have a direct impact on humans' lives and um, that are actually fundamentally changing the way that they can navigate the world, that they see the world, that they experience the world. And then I think, you know, from a personal perspective, it is really about just trying to do better every single day and then giving myself a little bit of grace to fail and then get up the next day and say, all right, well, what did I learn from that? And, you know, I think that's what I'll take into my next, in my next career that, you know, in my future, it's about how do I then help live that experience and showcase that out in the world so that other people can see that and I can be an example, you know, like many others before me were examples to me. And I, I really enjoy doing episodes like this because it shows the human behind the role and particularly to consumers, because in a world where sometimes big tech and data can seem scary and daunting, it's important for us to show that data can also be used for good and that companies and corporations, most brands are actually working towards creating better products, more inclusive products um, that can help the society of today and tomorrow. And before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd want to say to uh, the audience or the consumers that you think is important for them to understand in what product managers are doing and what tech companies are doing that they should be excited about? One of the things that I've been spending a lot of my time thinking about, especially amidst you know the layoffs that have happened over the past year, um, where you saw a lot of VC money company coming in and the stock market was going wild and there was just a lot of hiring and just excessive, you know, prioritization. I wouldn't even call it that. Just like doing of everything and anything. And you, when I look at what's happening now and how I philosophically think about product and setting up product teams and what product managers should and should not own, um, is that you, you know, we're going to move into a world now where like efficiency and effectiveness is really of critical importance, and where every single VC out there wants to see that you've proven revenue, right? And so I think that there's a way to balance that. And so they're not focused on revenue for the sake of revenue's growth at the detriment of the consumer experience, at the product experience, the user experience, because you can do that in the short term. You can make, there are so many growth hacks out there. There are so many like cheap short-term hacks that you can put in place to grow your revenue, to grow your user base, but it's not sustainable. And we've been seeing that that hap has been happening over the course of the past decade. 
And I and I I think I when I look out to the world, I just like hope that we don't go back into that same model, but that we really think about what are companies, you know, by the like the company that I'm, you know, I'm working for, what are we really here to do? And let's ruthlessly prioritize that. Let's get the people, let's get all of our people oriented on the biggest problem so that we are focused and we have the, you know, the collaboration in the minds of many people together to solve those problems first, and then we'll move on. Because I think efficiency and effectiveness and teams working really well together is going to be what what's going to be required of the next, you know, generation of product managers and of product leaders. It's going to be a mix of very good strategic thinking and frameworks mixed with really effective execution. And the the best way to do that is to really ensure that your team feels like a cohesive unit that's reflective of all the disciplines involved in actually creating that product. Um, And I think that's how you're going to get the most effective and efficient products built out there. Thank you so much, Michelle, for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I understand how busy you are. And thank you for talking to us. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that you would want to mention before we close up for today? You know, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on um, Twitter as well. So at M-I-C-H-C Parsons on Twitter and at LinkedIn. 